From 11FS, I'm David Breer, and this is Fintech Insider News. This week, we bring you SCA is here, well, kinda. Uh, GoCardless is launching over in the US, and according to The Telegraph, students are getting payday loans to help fund their love of avocado on toast. All this and much, much more on today's show. Welcome to episode 359 of Fintech Insider. Today, I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, Sarah Kaczynski. How's it going, Sarah? It's good. Busy, busy as ever. And um, summer has come back. I mean, you're, you're counting down the days to a holiday, aren't you? I'm like... Literally the days. Like I've got like, you know, a calendar that you rip off the page. It's <laughs> so, so close now. When you're, you're sort of storing up fun books to read in the sunshine, right? Yeah, I've got four books for a five-day holiday. I'm being ambitious. Nice. Fintech books, I presume? Yes, absolutely. All right, moving on. As always, we're not alone, but we're joined by some awesome, awesome guests. First up, and fresh from this week's FinTech Insider on air, it's Keith Gross, who's the head of UK at Plaid. How's it going? Good. Great to be here. I mean, it's been like five days since we last chatted. Like, much happened since then? Uh, Well, I found my way to your office this time. Nailed it. Next up, and making her debut, we have Audrey Timline, who is the senior broadcast journalist at BBC World Service Radio. How's it going? It's going really well, and I'm pleased to be here. Um, One of your team was on our podcast, so they said, can I be on your podcast? And uh, I'm happy to do that. I mean, it only seems fair, doesn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Well, thanks for being here. Uh, and finally, we have Imran, and I'm not even going to try because I get Go on, have a go, time. have a go. All right, I'm going to get a run up to this. Gulam Hussein Walla? 10 out of 10. Really? I mean, yeah. you're just being kind. Come on, at least give me an 11. You know where we work. <laughs> <laughs> Who is Open Banking Implementation... Open Banking Implementation Trustee. That I mean, harder. That I mean, it, harder if I was going to get one thing wrong in that, you wouldn't have think it would have been implementation, would you? <laughs> How's it going? Really good. Thank you for having me. Good. All right. Let's get on with the show, as there's a pretty uh, large amount of stuff to be talking about this week. First up, we have over on uh, Witch, which is SCA is here, but also being pushed back to March 2021. So, I mean, what's going on in this one? What do you think, Sarah? I mean, I haven't been close to this this week because I've kind of been in, in a bit of a bunker, but what's happening? <laughs> well, uh, Strong Customer Authentication officially came into force on the 14th of September. Um, that is officially. Um, there is, a, I think, an 18-month extension um, uh, granted by the FCA for UK organisations um, to, to get their act together. Uh, the idea of it is um, it's just come out of a European piece of legislation, out of PSD2, which anybody who listens to this regularly knows um, how I feel about it or how many hours I've dedicated to reading that documentation. Um, long story short, it's basically going to add for ask for extra authentication whenever you try and make uh, card not present payments. Um, but I feel like Imran knows more about this than I do, perhaps. A little bit. Cardmageddon. (laughs) That's that's what we were all expecting. I think we uh, have a title for this episode. Strong start. Cardmageddon. So this was the idea that because of PSD2, all, as you say, card not present, uh, payments were going to require SCA uh, to make them work, strong customer authentication. And frankly, industry just simply wasn't ready, even though they had more than two, even three years uh, to get ready for it. And that's partly because there are so many players in the card activity chain. Of course, you've got the issuers, you've got the acquirers, you've got the schemes, and then you've actually got the merchants as well. And I don't think anyone could quite figure out who really was responsible for making sure that all of that stuff worked. And in the end, the government, frankly, thought they're not going to risk it. They do not want digital payments to not work here in the UK. And that is a matter of percentage points of GDP. So they said, all right, guys, we'll give you a break. And uh, the break was across all of Europe. um, And I think people were um, surprised that it was as long as 18 months. But I think that goes to show just how important it is. Before I stop, I am going to say that I'm not an expert on this because I actually care about the other part of PSD2, which also came into force on the 14th of September, which is something called access to accounts. And that's what underpins open banking. But they're both kind of involved. In one respect, they're involved because actually one solution to SCA on cards is actually to make push payments from banks using open banking. If you've followed me through all of that, well done. (laughs) I mean, um, we we could go into access to accounts. Do you want to give us a quick overview of that, seeing as we're talking PSD2 and we have you behind the microphone? Do you want to give us a synopsis? So, So here in the UK, 
we are delivering PSD2's access to accounts using some very cool technology. It's an API, a single API standard that nine of the largest banks here in the UK have to implement. So as a fintech or a third party, you can access any of the UK banks using this single channel, and therefore your customers can share their bank data with you. Um, furthermore, if they actually want to execute payments through that channel, they can also do that. So you could instruct your favorite app. Uh, Yolt was one of the earliest ones that came into the open banking ecosystem to make payments on your behalf. Um, and now in the same way that cards were given a bit of breathing space, open banking access to accounts was also given some breathing space. It was given six months breathing space. Now, fortunately, I look after the nine largest banks and by and large, they don't need it. So 95% of the UK market is here and effectively it's open for business. So we're very excited about that. We've got over 300 fintechs now applying to get into open banking. A small number of them are building propositions at the moment, but that's increasing exponentially. And if you look at the API volumes that are going through open banking at the moment, we're increasing about 30, 40% every single month. So, um, yeah, it's looking promising. It's very exciting. Keith, did you want to jump in? Because open banking, open API, strong customer authentication are, are kind of your bag as well. Yeah, I was going to say, as one of the fintechs that's, that's building to open banking, I think it's been an interesting experience um, for us. I recognize that it's been a really huge lift and there are so many industry players that you do have to get aligned to make this happen. I think um, an interesting impact that we found from SCA is that it's not just for payments because many banks have put it at sort of the front door. And so mm-hmm. for just account information services, you actually now see SCA being applied every time you want to access an account. And so it's an interesting thing for some of our customers who have wanted to, say, link their account to a budgeting application, and now they have to go through this process and reauthenticate every 90 days. But I think the principle of it is something that we're all behind, which is consumer control for their data, their ability to permission it, to keep it safe. Um, so I'm excited to see it, it develop. I will say that I think um, there was a, a hard-to-find transparency in terms of who was doing what. And it was interesting that this 18-month delay came so close to the wire where you're waiting day in and day out and say, is this going to happen? Is this not going to happen? What country is doing what? Um, it was a pretty interesting process to be a part of. Yeah, I mean, the, the concern was the impact that all of this regulation would actually have on the average customer who really doesn't know or in fact care what open banking or SCA is or are. They just want to be able to use useful things easily and quickly. And the idea behind both of these, both open banking and SCA, is that they will enable that. Um, but what you know, we, one of the one of the biggest problems, from from my understanding, that we've seen with the implementation of SCA is a lot of the um, small merchants who sell online were not prepared for this. Yeah. And for, for them to a implement it and, and and be implemented effectively could have led to a huge loss of business and some of those those small merchants going out of business. Um, from the customer perspective. You're talking about YOLT and you were talking about, you know, um, using your budgeting apps. All of a sudden, you may have to every five times you try and log every 90 days, sorry, you try and log in, you have to put your thumbprint or enter your password or whichever extra method of authentication they've decided upon. Um, the, the, the idea of Cardmageddon was that um, every every five times you tap your contactless, you're going to have to enter your pin, pin yeah. which is uh, not it's not a requirement. You can do that or you can do it by volume every hundred euros or pounds, depending on where you are. So it's either or. Um, and the idea was that, you know, this was going to be this huge problem and everybody was going to stop making payments. And, and obviously that hasn't happened yet. But I think what's going to be interesting is to see the impact on both businesses and customers in the next 18 months. Because the biggest challenge has been, and I think this is partly why I've had this extension, that neither financial service institutions nor merchants can find a way to do this in such a way that is easy for customers to understand and doesn't disrupt the journeys they're used to. Mm. So if I'm used to just tapping every morning for my coffee and then to get on the tube and then for my lunch, and oh, wait, I've done five transactions in a day, so the next morning I have to put my pin in... Um, you know what's that going to do to to my to my spending behavior to my spending patterns the other thing that's important to note is that um, if you're using google or apple pay some of these restrictions don't apply so if you're someone who's using your watch or your phone to make contactless payments um you know it's it's not going to affect you the third thing is the way that some of the big banks implemented it um, was proven flawed almost immediately so we talked about this in a few shows ago but santander their uh implementation of strong customer authentication for any online purchases so using your your laptop for example required you to have a mobile phone um so if you didn't have a mobile phone you could not use their strong customer authentication you could not make purchases so 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 how have apple and google around this then (sighs) 
so it's to do with the limits, which I think Keith can probably explain. Okay. I was just going to so, do a quick anecdote about this online purchase journey because okay. somebody in the office had the perfect, like, real-life example of this. She dropped her phone. Okay. The screen smashed. She went online to try and purchase a new phone with her Santander credit card. Wait, was it a work phone? Should I be upset right we now? We don't have work phones. Some people do. <laughs> what? Okay, move on. <laughs> <laughs> okay, anyway. Um, this colleague of mine went online to try and buy a new phone using her Santander credit card. Santander said, great, but you've got to authenticate that purchase using um, a push notification through your app. So I can't see the app because my screen's shattered. Okay, great, we'll send you an SMS. I can't see the SMS because my screen is shattered. She couldn't make the purchase. That was it. That was that was it. She was locked, you know, she had to find another way. I think she actually had to physically go into a store and, and make the purchase for her new phone. And nobody at Santander had thought, oh, well, maybe we should have, like, a non-mobile option. Um, sorry, Keith, I did interrupt you there. You were going to... Oh, no, I, I was just going to give those three rules in case people aren't aware of what um, SCA is, right? You need to have two of the three of something you know, something you have, or something you are. So when you think of how Google and Apple are approaching it, they're saying... If you're paying with mobile phone and you're using face ID or your fingerprint, that's something you have, and the face and fingerprint is something you are. And so that's how they're using it to, to try and basically make the smoothest flow. So I'm a little bit worried that that ultimately will benefit them. But you don't have to use your fingerprint to make contactless payments with Google Pay. So how does that work? Because I just tap my phone. I don't have to... Is it because my phone is, has to be locked by a pattern? It's, if you've maybe? unlocked your phone, then you've... Ah, oh, because I've unlocked it. Got it. Right. Yeah, so you've used already... You're already I've used already the, You've already the authenticated on the device. No, actually, yeah. no. I can use my Google Pay without unlocking it. I'm going to look into this now. <laughs> I'm going to work this out. Ah, loopholes. I mean, yeah. uh, I've seen a, a bunch of people who have been on Twitter saying, like, I've been SCA'd. So it's like, it's start, <laughs> starting to become a thing, I guess, in terms of, uh, you know... People maybe, as you say, sort of wondering why this is happening. I mean, if you want to have a, um, a sort of a more detailed overview of this, we actually did an insights show back on episode 314. And we also took to Patrick Collinson of Stripe on episode 330, I believe it was, uh, who had some pretty strong opinions about this one. All right. Before you move on, do you mind if I just make one sure. very quick comment? I think it is always important that we understand why these things are happening. Uh, and of course, it is going to create more consumer inconvenience. And however, SCA really does work well on a mobile phone. The problem is, is when people don't have mobile phones. But the reason we're doing this is because there is a level of fraud that exists both in payments and in other areas that currently is just spread across all of society. So it's not as if it's a victimless crime. We are paying for it, and we're paying for it in higher issuing costs or high merchant fees. Um, and so we do need something like this to kind of, you know, make the breakthrough, because no individual company or merchant was going to do it on their own. So I'm, I'm kind of optimistic about where it will take us. But yeah, it will take a lot of change in behavior. Um, and it will really take uptake of, it will require uptake on the mobile phone, because you're right, anything on desktop it really struggles, which is why in open banking, one of the things we did is get it onto mobile as soon as we could. And just as a you know consumer, from the consumer point of view, what you're saying there is absolutely right, that you do need a mobile phone and we do all want to be safe. But it strikes me just, just hearing about all the notifications we're getting, and I've had them from my bank, you know, letters, the same as everybody else has. But we, you know, we get information from our bank saying we're going to require more information from you soon. And that itself sounds to me like a little bit of a space for fraud. Mm. If anybody nefarious was listening to this, you'll say, okay, all I need to do is write to the little old lady who's using her bank and say, I'm going to need this from you. You know, I mean, your granny already gets calls saying, why don't you just this tell happens. me your PIN number because I need to fix your computer. Well, it does happen. I have an elderly relative it's happened to. So this is the difficult thing. And I'm sure in your industry it always is, is as soon as you change something, Everybody gets confused. The next piece of paper they've got, they just comply with it because they think, hmm, that looks like my bank wants me to do something. Yeah, I mean, we, we did a... Um, I'm trying to figure out if how past tense this is, but this will go out on Monday. So last Friday from the future, this is weird, uh, a show about uh, anti-money laundering with uh, the ICO and the FCA, talking about exactly that, is that actually probably the most innovative people in our uh, whole space right now is criminals. 
So, I mean, they are very, very well funded. very, impressed with the yeah. interview. Yeah. When they stole my identity, it certainly worked. So, so it took me a very long time. What, what happened? To me. Oh, that was years ago. That was the old sort of crime where you find a mobile phone is turning up at your house that you never ordered. Okay. And several mobile phones are turning up at your house and people are using that as a way to authenticate their identity. That was a while ago. But the elderly relative, she was, she was phoned up quite recently and she has a computer which she rarely uses, you know. And they said, we need to fix your computer so you better tell us your password. Luckily, she's not a silly elderly relative and was able to realise, oh, I think someone told me not to do that. I mean, that's, that's usually about the point that my mum gives me a phone call. Like, so. mm. Well, the, the, point, the point there is um, we also have to be careful when we talk about, you know, maybe not being silly or maybe having to have a mobile phone. There are a lot of vulnerable people out there who are going to be affected by this who maybe cannot afford a mobile phone. So what are we going to do? Are we going to, is the bank going to give them a mobile phone? That'd be nice. And, um, and what about... Or they don't have reception. There's or many reasons. Reception, or, or what about, yeah. you know, to, to your point about elderly relatives, people who are suffering from dementia or Alzheimer's who may have been told a million times, you know, don't do that that but but those people uh, you know there are there are we are starting to see products and services uh, targeting those people to try and help them but um every time we do anything that as you say is trying to help the majority of the population i think we do have to keep in mind that the the vulnerable section of the population and how are we how are we going to find a way to help them and it just i think requires a little bit my argument to this is always you need a diversity within the product team who are designing the solutions because then somebody will say, but wait, my granny had this problem. We should find a solution for that whilst we're doing it. We should make sure it's in there rather than just assuming that everybody has a mobile phone and that's that. I don't know, no, that isn't what happened. Well, it sounds like it might have happened at Santander, actually. Um, I, I mean, regulation is driving so many changes in the industry. You know, I know a lot of our conversations around how positive it is but actually a lot of the gaps between these things are really interesting you know i mean open banking gdpr like sca like the the opportunities that sort of slide slightly between them i mean i'm i'm never quite sure whether I'd love to believe that somebody standing back from all of these things and going, this is how it all works together. But I'm not necessarily, I mean, the difference between how GDPR and from an open banking perspective are slightly at tension there. I mean, is this something you must be facing in this a lot? Right? It's a fascinating question. Um, ten, well, I mean, even if you go to give you one concrete example of what you're talking about, the definition of consent under GDPR and PSD2 is marginally different. And that's pretty fundamental. Mm. So, so kind of what happens is, you know, and, and this is where we are at the, at the moment, is a lot of this stuff gets dreamt up in Brussels. Then we have to interpret it and implement it at a local level. And it's fine where you've got the wiggle room to do that, because mm. by and large, particularly in the UK, um, we've got some pretty smart people that have good overview of everything. The question, the problem becomes is when some of that regulation is hardwired. So GDPR is actually a regulation. It doesn't get transposed. PSD2 is maximum harmonization. So actually, that's a cut and paste into the UK reg- uh, legislation. So I, it, it, it kind of does work. Mm. Um, it's interesting that the banks push a similar mantra, but they're less concerned about what it means for the outcome and more about how much work they have to do. So they mm. argue for a air traffic controller to help them land all these different things at the same time. Mm. But I actually think your point is better made we need some mechanism for actually knitting all this stuff together and and uh, one thing i would say is that there are a lot of people in government a lot of policy is moving from turning open banking into open finance Mm. turning open finance into smart data which is lots of other sectors such as energy telco water and so on um, and really trying to create the foundations of a digital economy Mm. now that requires some very big thinking yeah, it does. And, and, I, and I wonder how much that is being done, because I mean, that would be, I mean, a lot of what we, we've talked about with how the regulation changes here have been such a catalyst for, you know, the uh, ecosystem that we have today in the UK, actually piecing these things together in a way that fundamentally either really accelerates benefit for consumers or actually opportunities for new organisations to come to the market and create, you know, with that competition mandate, particularly from an FCA's perspective, would allow us, I think, to continue to move forward in a way that keeps the UK at the the sort of pinnacle of these things. So, I mean, it seems like a probably a pretty good role for somebody, do you think? Yeah, I mean, it could be a fascinating role. The way that I tend to think about it at the moment is that actually in all the economies across the world, we've got government departments playing different roles. So you've got regulators, 
who are there to ensure that the legislation is enforced, but the legislators write the legislation. Then you've got antitrust. And actually, that creates a really interesting triumvirate. Mm. Now, in a lot of economies, they purposely pull those things apart to create some sort of balance. And whilst it makes a lot of sense to pull these things together, unless there's a really strong mandate to make things happen, I think you kind of get stuck as well. So great idea. I'm not sure anyone's really doing it. Uh, yeah, and I, and I think that is a, a really hard thing to do. And I think also going back to sort of the the difficulty here with implementation is because with PSD2, it's being enforced at the NCA level. If you're a multinational company or a multinational bank, you have to slightly change how you're conforming to the rules depending on where you are. And so it makes it really difficult for fintechs that want to expand. Um, and I think it's, it's going to be an important role to figure out how to harmonize that across Europe going forward. Indeed. Well, I mean, this is definitely something that's going to run and run and run. So we'll come back to it definitely on a later show. All right. Next up, we have a story over on TechCrunch, which is Go Cardless launches U.S. debit payment solution and opens San Francisco office. So Go Cardless is launching its U- uh, within the U.S. with the announcement of its new ACH debit solution, which is its re- reoccurring payments platform and is opening a U.S. regional headquarters located in San Francisco. Not a bad place for an office, I have to say. Uh, businesses can use the Go Cardless platform to offer U.S. consumers the option to pay by reoccurring bank payments as an alternative to a credit card. I mean, is this something that we already have here? Well, we did speak to somebody at GoCardless to find out. Shall we hear what they had to say? Let's do that. At GoCardless, our vision is to solve recurring payments globally. And a big part of that is the global bank debit network that we're building. We're really excited to have announced uh, the launch of ACH Debit, which now means that our merchants can now collect and pay out in over 30 markets globally, covering 70% of the world's recurring payment volume. So why are we doing this? Why have we announced this? Well, number one, the US market is large and we think ripe for disruption. 50 to 70% of B2B payments last year were done in the US by check. And there were more than 13 billion ACH debit transactions as well. So we know that there's an opportunity to go after. We think that direct debit is the best way to do that. Uh, Number one, because of preference, both for businesses, but also for consumers. Number two, because direct debit is a more reliable payment mechanism than credit cards. It's more likely to succeed because people don't lose bank accounts in the same way as they do cards. Number three, uh, because of the cost implications, we're we're able to offer a much more cost-effective solution than than the credit card providers do. And then number four, because of the cash flow um, implications, using a mechanism like ours gives businesses certainty about when and how much they're going to get paid. So that's why we think the US is an interesting market, why we think direct debit is is, is the right payment mechanism to be launching there. We're clearly not the only ones to have come up with the idea of launching ACH. Um, Lots of people do it. We think our offering is significantly different, Uh, number one, because we're bringing a global bank debit network to bear. Um, Number two, uh, we offer a developer-friendly platform that makes it super easy to integrate with us and to use our product. And number three, we've got really deep partnerships with well over 150 software platforms, including Zora, Salesforce at the the enterprise end, and lots of SMB or vertical-specific offerings as well. So we think the the announcement of ACH uh, unlocks a huge opportunity, both for U.S. businesses, but also for businesses around the world who want to collect in the U.S. And to top all of this off, we've just uh, opened a regional HQ in San Francisco. We've got a GM, more than 30 years experience in software, growing team, um, first permanent hires, uh, and really excited about the future in the market. Cool. So, I mean, super, super interesting thing. Did he really say 70% of transactions were happening via check? I, I mean, believe I it. think that's and, what I heard. Yeah. yeah. Really? Is that is that what happens still in the U.S.? Like seriously? Uh, you're looking at me like I'm a business. Um, <laughs> I, I, mean, I mean, I'm looking you as your representative def- American. I'm afraid. That's right. Like, okay. Well, I'll I'll, uh, I'll own the flag nation, here. Yeah. I'll I'll own the flag here. I I do think checks are still a big part of how businesses work in the mm-hmm. U.S. And even though ACH is the oldest payment method, there's a lot of opportunity and innovation going on in the ACH debit network um, in the U.S. And I think we're excited to have GoCardless as a neighbor now. Um, Plaid <laughs> is also headquartered in San Francisco, so maybe we'll see them see them on the streets or in the local pubs, as we say here. Um, <laughs> but I think I think there that was, is that was good. Yeah, you're yeah, blending. I'm, I'm acclimating, right? You are, I'm acclimating. You really 
Um, I, I do think that it's a really interesting problem to solve. And this is actually something that Plaid helps with as well by authenticating recurring payments to some fintechs uh, that we support in the U.S. But um, it'll be interesting to see how this develops over the coming years. Mm. I mean, GoCardless have been on a bit of a tear, actually, haven't they? Like doing amazingly well in terms of customer adoption and, you know, people sort of picking this up. So, I mean... They, they had they had such a good idea because as somebody who used to work for a company that required recurring subscription payments to operate and understanding how frequently they fail, particularly if they're done via a credit card. I mean, debit card is one thing, credit card is another. Um, so uh, if, you, if you use direct debit, which is what we call it in the UK, but that kind of like monthly standard payment or not even standard payment, but like a monthly payment of whatever is on your account, literally directly debiting your account, um, then you have a success rate of 95 to 100%. If you use a credit card, then you have a success rate of 80 to 95%. Or that's just cards generally, actually. But that is a huge amount of business to lose if you are a business. Um, so, you know, and, and they, they solved that problem in the UK first and took it to the US, which I would say arguably has a bigger problem. In fact, I was chatting to somebody in my team the other day who is oh, early 20s. And he was asking me about IBAN. He said, what's an IBAN? And I said, well, it's, you know, it's the way in which you make a payment if you're, if you're paying a bill or something if you, for a company. He said, what, what, you mean you don't just use direct debit? And I was like, no, some people don't use direct debit. And he was like, what? Why wouldn't you use direct debit? And he had no concept that some people in the world just don't have this mechanism for, for making recurring payments. Um, so we sort of sit here, it's a bit like we get excited about faster payments. We go, oh, yeah, faster payments, everybody has that. And actually, <laughs> we're actually quite advanced on that front. So I think... Um, they go cardless. It's an excellent move. I think they can make a huge amount of impact over there, and I think it's a problem that really needs solving. I, I really hope that they can as well, because the just translating the model across would be fascinating if it works. Because one thing about the British system is it's very quirky. So here we have direct debits for sure, but it's based on a direct debit mandate, and that's something that's standardised across the whole industry. Do they have something like that in the US? I'd be intrigued to find out. Um, and then, of course, we have the direct debit guarantee, which is a phenomenal piece of liability cover, so consumer protection cover, which basically means that if a consumer disputes any payment made via direct debit, they can claim it back in perpetuity. Wow. Now, th- that's something that not a lot of businesses actually really understand themselves. I'm not sure what their accountants think when they book those revenues. Um, but yeah, in theory, those can be called back. And that, that's a really important point because that's how we in the UK built trust around direct debits. So I, I'm, I wish GoCardless all the best. I think they're an amazing company. I'd love to know quite what they need to do in the US or what the US needs to do to make direct debits work. So, so ACH is owned by a group of banks, is that Correct. It's it, not a government. It's run or a, by Natcha is the organisation. But yeah. it's not a, like a government organisation. It's a private organisation. Whereas what Imran was just talking about is government legislation that protects. Uh, no, actually, it sits within the payment scheme. Oh, does itself. it? Okay. I, I believe so. Pay.uk, I think, administer all of that. Interesting. Yeah, okay. but that but that, that should be regulated. Yeah, as well. the, yeah, that guarantee doesn't exist in the US, which is really interesting. interesting. And, and we have, at least, I've heard when I've been talking to fintechs over here that sometimes it does worry them when they use that payment method because they think, is this actually revenue booked, or in six months is someone going to say, wait, no, and we have to return this? I think it's great for consumers. I think it makes it tough for businesses sometimes. Yeah. That's really interesting as well when you think about the rise of the fintechs who are specifically helping you to cancel subscriptions you don't use. Mm-hmm. So if you think about, um, I think Emma is definitely one. There's lots of others out there, but off the top of my head, I can't a think of one any. just came out this week. I, I, I noted it down. Uh, free trial surfing. Ah, uh, yes. Yep. In, the uh, no, in the no, US. No, in the UK. No, in the UK. Yeah. It started in the US. It came to the UK. In fact, I believe that was a BBC article, was it not? Uh, yes, well, BBC <laughs> has written an article about it, as have lots of other people. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, and uh, that has just been started up to take the guesswork out of tracking all your trials. But it, it just sounds like pretty hard luck on those magazines, doesn't it? I mean, the New Yorker at the start of the year, it's a really lovely offer. You get a bag with it as well. If you remember, you'll cancel it after three months. But, uh, (laughs) you know, surely, I mean, it is lovely to support new writing, but it's also quite expensive and a lot of them track up, you know. Mm. I never get around to reading them all. So I cancelled mine, but 
I don't think a lot of people remember to do it. And if you add up, you know, um, you'll say The Economist is another one around here. They, they're always standing outside Liverpool Street Station trying to get you to sign up. And then you've got Netflix and Spotify and Now TV that you sign up to see that one programme and now you've realised you don't actually watch anything else on it. Plus you've got, you know, that gym membership. Everybody talks about gym memberships. I've never been a member of a gym, but apparently a lot of other people have and have never used it. Um, you add all that up and then somebody comes along and says, you know, we'll, we'll go through your transactions and tell you which ones of these you've signed up to and do you want to just cancel it? whatever so on the one hand that's helping the consumers but on the others to, to your your guy's very valid point if you then retract all of that and if you say that's in perpetuity does that mean i can pull that back for a decades decades wow centuries so i could, so I yeah. could pull back so if i've been say i subscribed to the ft at university which is <clears throat> over 10 years ago um and i want to pull back every month subscription i could do that with wait you subscribe to the ft university? i was thinking that we had well. very different university experiences i'm just saying uh, possibly okay. <laughs> <laughs> my point being that if a lot well, but, pause a lot of university freshers sign up to the ft because they give you free stuff at the oh okay fair. fine okay anyway my point being i was trying to i was trying to get to the bottom of this could i claim that back all of that. But you'd have to have a statutory reason for doing it. So right. let's say that for all of those years, the FT hadn't actually been delivered. Right. Then you could dispute it. And you could okay. get it all back. Right. That's how it works. Mm. Yeah. They're probably piling up at your old university. If you didn't read it, that's kind of your aim. That's with you. You know, what? I, I think and love The Economist and I've got a stack of them. It takes me so long to read them. It's... Anyway. The, the, I was just... If I may, the... The, the other thing is that when, for subscription businesses, people don't use direct debit, uh, certainly in the UK they use card and file. Uh, and card and file itself has a huge number of problems associated mm. with that. Um, and I think that is something that is very, very big in the UK. Some estimate around three to 400 million instances of card on file. That's where the customer has given the details, including the CVV, to a third party. And if that gets compromised, then your details are out there and they can take as much or as little as they want. So we need to sort out subscriptions, not least for the payment mechanism, but also the subscription trap problem. And we've got to get a balance right so the merchants can even still make money out of it. It's really complicated. Right. So I, so I was actually wrong then earlier when I was talking about that payment mechanism for businesses, that if you have a direct debit versus a, a card payment, then it's the Collins card on file and direct debit is where the amount would maybe change every month. It's so a variable direct debit. That would yeah. be a pool payment from your account. And that's where you either you usually have a, a, a gas bill or an electricity yeah. bill or even something like Now TV, which goes up and down depending on what you've watched, whereas a card not file is where you pay £10 every... Yeah, card so on file, £10 every so month. So an Uber will be something like that. Right. I mean, it, it feels very much like we're, you know, to your point, there's these various different elements that were put in place a very long time ago in some of those mm. instances. I mean, things like tokenization now of, of uh, credit card details or card details fix that. should fix that in a major, major way, right? So, I mean, it is a fixable thing, but I guess it needs to be adopted by enough big organizations for then us to almost go back around that. But if the master details are lost on core cards, you're in a bad place from the get-go, aren't you? So... I mean, it's it's a hard thing given. I mean, the amount of subscriptions I think I probably have. To your point, actually, that I twenty just, thirty. I mean, <laughs> that you actually I, use. I sign up. It looks great, and yeah. I try to remember. And then twenty years later, yeah. we're like, do we still need that? But uh, but to, to link back to your first point or first article about SCA, these are the kinds of instances where. No individual organisation can fix it on their own, nor is it in their interest to fix it on their own. We as a society pay, and then someone needs to step in. Yeah. And that's where you get these quite big changes that then have big implementation costs, big customer behavioural changes are required. You kind of need to get through that, and then we're in a much better place. But it's tough. It is. Hard yeah. to do. And I, and I think one of the things that has in the, in the US that has led to the rise of so much credit card usage is consumers rely on that to dispute things that you would see with this. Yeah, exactly. It's a protection thing. And so that's why it's used sometimes for subscriptions is that you feel more comfortable that you can call up someone and say, hey, I didn't get this service. Please reverse this charge. Um, And you don't have that same guarantee with the debit network, which will be interesting to see how it plays out. I also think this is going to be really interesting to see if it's addressed by the virtual virtualization of cards, right? So I could go in my Revolut app and create a virtual card and use that only for subscriptions. And then you know, that card only exists in my app that I could cancel going forward. So I think there are ways that this could be addressed as well going forward, and it will be interesting to see 
how that plays. So I, I actually have a, a question for Imram on this, which is, I believe in payment initiation, we're looking at adding recurring and variable recurring payments down the road, right? Is that, yeah. is that going to happen? So, so in open banking, at the moment, what you can do is you can use your favorite fintech or third party to initiate a single immediate payment from your account. So that would be a push payment. Um, and you can also do it to set up future dated payments and standing orders what we're really trying to do is make sure that we can also create variable recurring payments. And, and the beauty of that is that it gives the customer a huge amount of control over where their payments are going to. So they'll have, there'll be a dashboard where they can see all of the merchants or counterparties that they have agreed to send uh, money to. But crucially, they can also set parameters around it. So you could say, for example, I'll uh, sign up to Uber, but I'll agree to 10 payments, no individual payment being more than £15 and an aggregate no more than £100 for example. So we're looking at some really interesting ideas around that. It would be free of interchange because it wouldn't use the cards. It would settle immediately because of faster payments. Um, but we've got a lot of work to do to get the whole industry there. Um, but the uh, we're creating a lot of the standards to do that. So yeah, I'm optimistic that we'll get there. That's really interesting what you're saying about, you know, the dashboard as well. And uh, you have to understand yourself then, don't you? And if you're going to decide if you're going to have to make a series of choices, I know that when I get Ubers, I may not be entirely sober. So let me put some sort of limit on that. Um, You know, you're going to start making psychological choices and think about your spending, which is is very interesting. I'm glad that's not just me. Thanks for uh, making me feel better. (laughs) I didn't say me, but I said I I had a physical um, user of Uber, which I'm actually not a user of. Uber, but uh, some people I know who uh, use Uber. I mean, it feels like you're protesting slightly too much uh, yeah. now, which no, makes I'm me not, feel no, it definitely is you. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, on that note, let's move on. So uh, and the next story is over on The Telegraph, which is British fintech startup backed by Goldman Sachs axes 20% of its staff. So this is um, Bud has laid off 20% of its employees, which, I mean, when it sounds like 20%, that sounds like a huge amount of people if it was like 150,000 people organization. Um, but we're talking about a company that's got 100 people. I mean, I mean, this is a this is a big deal, but essentially the chief executive Ed Maslavekas has said that uh, the business is essentially changing and just needs a different group of people to move forward. So essentially, the one other source came out and said um, that of the hundred people, twenty of them within the marketing department, which mainly accounts for the changes there. So I mean. Bud were one of the first people to kind of come out uh, and really sort of try and take advantage of everything that happened through open banking. One of the first companies going through the FCA sandbox. Um, I mean, is this a big deal or is this essentially just a company slightly changing tack, particularly if it's marketing? I mean, I think, you know, the fact that it's in marketing does speak to the fact that Bud started off doing one thing, looked at the market, realised the market perhaps wasn't appropriate and well, the market wasn't looking for what they were offering and decided to change what they were offering in order to meet the market needs. And therefore, your marketing would change because your marketing, instead of marketing to customers or consumers, which is what Bud started off doing, they're now marketing to uh, large uh, organisations, um, financial services organisations. So I, I do get that. But I, but I'd say they, I mean, they made that pivot from sort of B to C to B to B two years ago, eighteen months ago. Yeah. So what is interesting is that this has come just after they've raised um, sixteen million pounds, and um, I wonder. I I really don't know this, but I wonder if one of the conditions of raising that money was that they changed the structure of their organisation, because mm. that is that is a thing that does happen when you when you raise money, particularly if you're raising VC funding. I don't know if that was VC or not, but there are sometimes you know um, requirements that come with that. I mean, particularly when you're looking at institutional investment. I mean, a, you know, particularly heavy from a investment from HSBC, who obviously were uh, one of the first users with the companion app that actually they they launched. But now, Goldman Sachs, uh, Sabadea, and various sort of other people in that space, it could easily be that sort of change of tact potentially. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, d- d- different investors want to see different people on the team. Um, that that does happen, and if they're bringing in, you've got a much more global uh, group. It looks like here, Goldman Sachs, uh, ANZ, Sabadell, as you say. So, mm. sorry, Keith, did you want to jump in? Yeah, so, so I mean, I can't comment on Bud in particular. I think this is an unfortunate story, but it's something that relates to their company. I think what I will say is, I don't think this is indicative of fintech and the open banking movement at all. When I talk to, I know for Plaid and other companies in this space, we're continuing to hire and grow and focus on that. So I don't think this is something that 
fintech should be worried about. I think this is probably something specific to a single company, is my personal view. Mm. And I think Ed actually sort of went on to say that actually they're continuing to, you know, significantly higher, particularly in the engineering side of things. So I'm not sure it's necessarily, as you say, a sort of a retraction of like open banking not being a thing. Don't panic too yet, Imran. It's uh, everything goes okay. Um, and not, maybe not a sign that actually Bud is in any sort of uh, precarious situation, but um, interesting nevertheless. It does remind me a little bit of some of the stories we hear from coming out of the big banks who say we're going to cut this many jobs we're going to hire and retrain this many other people and in the big banks it's usually we're going to cut this many people who are in front office or branch and hire this many people who are in digital or you know those are literally the terms they use it sort of has a, a similar ring to it as a kind of like we need we need to change the people we have I mean if Ed comes out and tells us how much money he's going to spend on digital transformation we've we'll have a whole episode dedicated to it <laughs> all right on that note let's take a bit of a break Today, customers are demanding greater value from financial services. They expect more agility, innovation, and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation, and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending, and treasury and capital markets on-premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra. Cybos, the world's premier financial services event, is landing in London's XL on the 23rd to the 26th of September. More than 8,000 decision makers and experts from across the globe will gather to shape the future of finance and the opportunities for fintechs will be bigger than ever. Specially priced fintech tickets are available. Don't miss out. Book today at cybos.com. At 11FS, we exist to change the fabric of financial services and the perception of the industry as a whole. And we're excited to officially bring you a first glimpse of our most ambitious media project to date. We've made a feature-length documentary. For years, the story of the financial crisis has been told in isolation. The bad things that happened during it, the global fallout from it, and the effect on consumers as a result. So we wanted to tell the untold story, how UK financial services evolved out of the crisis, created the perfect ecosystem, and grew into a thriving global fintech capital that we have today. We conducted over 20 interviews from the leaders in the UK's biggest banks, regulators, fintechs, all sharing first-hand experience of the changes that propelled the UK to its position as the global financial services hub. The trailer is available to watch now on 11years.film. Head over to the website, watch it, and let us know what your thoughts are on Twitter. All right, let's get on with the show. Uh, so next up, we have a story over on Finextra, which is Visa and MasterCard join Plaid Financing. So it's been made public that Visa and MasterCard have joined a $250 million financing round in Plaid. I mean, enough from me. What's going on? Well, I think, first of all, we're excited to be able to, to share this news publicly. But when you think about what's happened in terms of innovation and financial services historically, Visa and MasterCard have been at the forefront of that for many years. And I think for us at Plaid, we're extremely excited to continue to drive the next era of innovation in fintech and um, the whole financial ecosystem. I think our goal continues to be to build the infrastructure layer and Visa and MasterCard have done that in credit cards today. And so I think it's a, it's a good partnership, and mm -hmm. we're excited to be working with them going forward. And along those lines, I actually found out, interestingly enough, this week was the 61st anniversary of credit cards being invented. So interesting week for that to come out as well. Wow. I mean, $250 million, dude. I'm coming to your office next time. Um, <laughs> but, um, I mean, it's interesting because you guys have had American Express involved in earlier funding rounds. So now, you know, Amex, Visa, and MasterCard together, you know, there's usually more of a territorial thing around advantage there. But it's good to see everybody sort of coming together with a good idea. I think one thing that we're really passionate about is viewing ourselves as a neutral platform. I think that extends to how we view giving consumers access to their data, but it also has extended to our investors as well. And so um, I think it makes perfect sense with how we've approached the market. It's awesome. I, I want to see what you guys are going to do with all that, that money to invest in. Because I guess in terms of, you know, <laughs> we talked about this We might on... start a podcast, you know. I liked him just... for a little while. <laughs> 
But you have just come to the UK quite recently. Are we going to see any more international expansion? Or are you going to do anything exciting over here? I have nothing new to announce right now. Um, <laughs> you tuned. Stay tuned, stay tuned, stay tuned. <laughs> well, tune in to Plant's new podcast next week. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. Well, I, I, can, I can add one other piece of news that actually came out today related to this as well. But we Please actually do. announced that we signed a data access agreement with Wells Fargo as well. So I think we also have one with JP Morgan. But I think this is another example of us being both a neutral platform, but excited to partner with big players in the ecosystem too. I think this is really interesting as well because we're um, going back and round to open banking a lot today. But um, I talk a lot about open banking, not as much as Imran, but I do talk about open banking a fair bit. Um, and it's interesting to see the two different ways that it's evolving. So if you, well, two, there are many different ways, but two of the main ones, one in Europe, you have it driven by regulation. But when I look at what's happening in the US, there's an awful lot of open banking Open banking, small O, small B, kind of open banking, open finance, you know, the, the ecosystem opening up and providing access to data and systems that's happening off the back of, of enterprising cust- uh, companies for the benefit of their customers. So nobody has told Wells Fargo that they have to give you plaid access or help you provide that, uh, your customers or your end customers, your yeah, <laughs> the, 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 the end customers, the, the, the consumers and the small businesses who want access to their own data, Plaid is helping them get that via working with Wells Fargo, JP Morgan, etc. But nobody's told any of those banks they have to do it. They're doing it off their own back because they see the benefit. Um, and that's interesting to me to see the two different ways that that's evolving. Yeah, I, I think that's a good characterization. But I'll, I'll also add on that I think there are lots of opportunities for fintechs to partner with banks here in EU and the UK as well. I think open banking is doing a great job of setting the foundation, but there's lots of places you can go to improve experiences and data access for consumers. And sometimes that just requires knocking on doors and having conversations as well. Yeah, I mean, I heard a couple of really interesting ones from people looking to take advantage of that this week, actually. I'm not going to share it right now. They'd be super pissed off. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there are people who are moving beyond just the aggregation plays and, you know, and actually really doing... Uh, interesting pieces together, which I mean, it's going to be fascinating to see how it gets adopted. But to, if I if I may just say a word on the open banking, one of the things that I would really like to see happen here in Europe and in the UK is now that we have helped define a common standard that all the regulatory APIs of open banking sit on is that actually now the market develops premium APIs that sit on top of that. And, and therefore, any data access agreements or whatever you want to call them that are dreamt up by innovative fintechs and you know entrepreneurial big banks, if they're using the same standards, they're talking to each other in the same way, I think it's got a much higher chance of success. Okay. So I, I would love to see more happen, yeah. but building off the foundation. I, I completely agree with that. I think very often regulation just being the sort of minimum thing is like a real problem. And uh, actually at the point where people start opening up more and feel more comfortable that they've uh, got control over that in a real yep. way, they'll start doing a lot more, it's especially, as you say, when they start seeing the material benefit of doing it, you know? Yeah. Well, I was going to say was that Ashley just wrote a blog on that, which will be out in a couple okay. of weeks. Yeah, literally about, like, what we can do next and where we can go next. So, I mean, it's know. tough because we can't, like, give a link right now, given that will be in no, the No, but future. I'm going to bring it. You're going to bring it, back. Clearly, okay. yeah. Well, we'll talk about that in a few weeks. I, I think my one comment on that as well, though, is I, I do think there's lots of opportunity to build on top of it, but I do think we should keep the principle that a consumer's data is their data, and they should be able to permission and provide access to that without necessarily a gate in the way. Um, that's something that personally at Plaid we're very passionate about. And so it'll be interesting to see how that develops over time mm. as well. Well, and uh, remove permission. And I know this is something we've talked it's about big a lot for us. before. Yeah. And, and I think that's, in, you know, naturally, you, I've seen you talk on stage a few times about this, but it's a, a natural next step for a lot of the work that I guess you, you were doing as well. Well, I think what we're, where we're at is we're very good on revoking permission. Mm. And where we're not so good at is on actually um, erasing information that's already been shared. Mm. And if you think about it, that second bit is a crucial um, pillar of GDPR. Um, but it's not reflected in PSD2. So way back to the beginning of this podcast, you talked about distinctions between two. That's a a great one. And we need to fix it. Mm. Again, all opportunity, which is great. All right, moving on to the next story. And I cannot believe that this isn't our funny one at the end. But let's go through this. So this is students are taking out payday loans to pay for gym memberships, 
but also avocados. Wonderful. Um, so students are taking out payday loans to fund holidays and healthy food like avocados on toast, new figures have shown. So research by Money Supermarket shows 136% uplift in the number of students taking out costly short-term loans to help fund their lifestyle, potentially like FT subscriptions, you know, maybe for those <laughs> Times particular... Times have changed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, I think I was at university a long time before before this, uh, before this survey was continued, uh, carried out. Um, what really annoys me about this, as one of the data people in the room, is that there are two different surveys they've mashed together. So they did a survey which said how many students take out payday loans, and then they did a separate survey which said, what do you spend your money on? And they mashed the two together. And that really irks me. I think the fact that students are taking out more payday loans is a question, you know, we need to get to the bottom of, of why that is. The fact that the students are choosing to spend their money more on healthy food or gym memberships is okay, cool, whatever, you know, fine over here, but that's a different question. So I think this just really irks me the way that this has been written. <laughs> I, I think it irks me as well, but for a slightly different reason where I, you know, I like the funny headline, it's a little clickbaity, but I think um, characterizing this as a um, millennials are taking on debt to buy avocado toast ignores a huge issue. Um, this is obviously personally a passion of mine, but also a big thing in, in America. There's 44 million Americans that have more than $1.5 trillion in student debt, um, which is just a catastrophic problem that needs to be solved, and they need tools to be able to do that. Um, actually, we just released a product called Liabilities, which covers 90% of student debt um, that uh, basically students could have and allows them to connect it to tools that can help them manage it better. And I think this is a problem that's going to impact the U.S. at the political level all the way down to the community level. But it's, it's, a, it's a real thing. And, and in the U.K., to me, what this actually speaks to is, well, why do these students have less money than I did when I was at university? Because I don't think that they're going out any less or I don't think that they're any less financially savvy than I was. So what else is going on that means that their living costs are getting to the point where they need to take out payday loans? Now, there may well be some of them who have, you know, a, either no or little financial education and are, are all people who are deliberately responsible, irresponsible, you know, it, it could be those things. But it could also be why are living costs so high for students that this is the resort they need to take? Because we had overdrafts when I was at university and an awful lot of people had them. Um, but these these people might hear like overdrafts aren't enough, they're also using credit cards and a payday loan and, and, and. So there's something else going on there. Yeah, I think I would uh, agree with that. There's a couple of things in the story which really come out of it is, one, um, students take out loans. I mean, we didn't take out loans when we were students, but they know how to take out loans because it's a, a university loan is the very first thing they get, you know, and I think the story does talk about so this culture of being able to take out a loan. So first of all, you think, whoa, that's a bit scary. But things are expensive. Um, as a mother of children who are going to university now, I, I'm, I'm quite surprised at the different tiers of things like accommodation available. Mm. That's expensive. And this is uh, private money which goes into the accommodation. And these, these are businesses which are marketing to students. And uh, you can get your basic level, which seems fine to me. But if you want the upper level, that's very expensive. Wait, there's, there's tiering there of is cost tiering. of... Really? Yeah, there's, wow. there's, there's, there's tiers mm. of university-sponsored uh, halls of accommodation. Yeah. Wow. They still call them halls? I don't know. It's yeah. called when we're there. Halls of residence. Halls yeah. of residence, You know, yeah. basic, where you share a bathroom, uh, up to luxury, where, you know, you don't share anything at all wow. with anybody. Lake views on suites. <laughs> well, <laughs> I believe butler. so, you know. But even, my, my, my point would also be that even basic accommodation is now, as a percentage of the loan those students are getting, much higher than it was when I was at university. I was at university up north in Leeds. It wasn't exactly, you know, a, a very expensive place to be. Hey, um, none of that Yorkshire bashing, are you? It wasn't, wasn't bashing. <laughs> it's a good London. thing. It was cheap. Right, it meant I'm it meant money left over to, like, purchase wine or books or the FT yeah. subscription. Yeah, okay. Um, Probably in that order. Um, but my, my point being that the percentage that what I would call bare necessities, mm. um, the percentage of your loan that's being taken up by those is increasingly high. Yeah, Whether I that's think that's definitely true. Basic, I'm sure they're not yeah. all spending it on avocados or yeah. maybe cheap avocados, but I'd rather be <laughs> an avocado well, now. Well, one of the things yeah. I'd, I'd be fascinated to see would be, I think, really helpful in a survey like that is where they then find students that have used payday loans is to then try and figure out a way of testing their financial literacy. So do they understand 
what it is, what the cost is, do they have any concept of APR and all that kind of stuff, we could well be very well surprised that the ones that are taking out know precisely what they're doing. They say, if I went into the overdraft of my bank, it's going to cost me X. I take out the payday loan. I don't pay the fee on it. It costs me this. I know that my grant or my you know, money coming in from home or wherever it is is coming in then. And of course, it makes sense to me. Or we find that they've got no idea what they're doing and they're hitting the payday loans hard because they're being advertised on the back of football players' shirts. That would be really helpful to me. I'm less interested in the avocado yeah. <laughs> Particularly if it's driving up the price. Because <laughs> then Carney's going to be QEing on avocado. Oh, it's going to get it's messy. very true. I feel like we should do more primary research in this. Like, we're, we're down sure. to the student union straight after this show, I reckon. So. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I would echo Imran where I'd be really interested to know the financial literacy behind this. While I, while I think rising costs is a big part of it, I also think there's, I would suspect that there's a segment of students that don't know what they're getting themselves into in this case, and, and I think the realization will only hit when it's too late. Mm, I think you're right. There's a segment who don't, and there's another segment, I'm pretty sure you'll find this is all anecdotal, who do, and young people do a lot of juggling now, don't they? They know they've got to um, take this little bit of interest here and pay off that little bit there, and uh, I just feel a bit sad that they've got to do it so young now. You know, you can't just relax. You've got to keep an eye on your finances from the age of about 12, I think. Well, it's hard, isn't it? Most people start their professional life with such an an amazing amount of debt, which is, I mean, it's a pretty terrifying sign, isn't it? So I wasn't laughing at that. What I was laughing at was that once you've been through all of this, and even if the only loans you've taken out are the government loans, then you have to deal with the student loans company for like 20 years, and that's another form of torture on top of it. I mean, are you speaking from experience? Yes, yes. (laughs) Shouldn't have had that FT subscription, okay? We talked about this. They always tell me every time I phone them. All right. And the and finally story this week. So we have Gartner Hype Cycle for 2019. So this is the Gartner Hype Cycle for Emerging Technologies, which seems to indicate no technology is emerging, which is interesting. So for anybody who hasn't actually uh, seen this, go and Google it now. So there is a standard hype cycle for, for Gartner. Caveat, used to work for Gartner, so know this pretty well. Um, but actually going through innovation trigger, peak of inflated expectations, a trough of disillusionment, and a slope of enlightenment. And actually, unfortunately, no technology is actually beyond that space right now. And if you compare that to uh, the previous year's uh, emerging technology for 2018, a lot of those things have either gone backwards or disappeared entirely, which is confusing. I think... Also, it's probably worth pointing out that Gartner had a slightly different system this year. So blockchain, which was on emerging technologies last year, now has its own hub cycle. So that's where that's blo- that's where blockchain's gone. It has emerged. It has emerged. Um, and there's nothing in the trough of disillusionment because they're emerging. So they can't be they can't be disillusioning us yet. They have only just emerged. Um, I, mean, I, mean, is, I was trying to read the methodology. I got very confused. But I think that's it. it. It really puts us in a sort of sense of frenzy, though, because if you kind of look at actually all of the things that are basically... Uh, innovation triggers there is so much stuff in there so much stuff that I don't know what it actually is if I'm honest with you Uh, (laughs) edge AI and explainable AI hmm. Mm, I I mean I'd like the explainable (laughs) (laughs) can someone or or then you've got AI PAAS platform as a service presumably but yeah I mean yeah platform as a service artificial intelligence that makes sense Bio like the biochips that's that's vegetarian is it I was down there with bio- <laughs> I was well I was down there with biotech culture to artificial tissue that sounds like a cheese I don't know what that <laughs> it is. does it does sound tasty I mean uh, the fact that uh, 5g is at the peak of that I mean there actually are people really putting those things into practice now I would agree with with that being at peak hype, though. But this is because I used to work on Pixel phones at Google back in the day. And so I think 5G as a technology was more brand than it was increased speed. And it's going to take a lot longer to roll out than people think. Mm. I mean, data connectivity is always such an accelerant for interesting experiences. But like engineers ruin everything, is my experience. It's like, (laughs) actually, you get to a point where whatever the capacity is, they use it to the full width. So the idea that we're going to roam around with infinite connectivity is just, you know, farcical, basically. So, I mean, but there are really uh, interesting, I mean, flying autonomous vehicles. I mean, it's, it's on the way up, which is exciting. So, I mean, I guess by 2021, we might have those flying cars. Is that what we're saying here? Jetsons might actually be a thing? I mean... 
you understand Gartner's methodology better than I do, I think. I, I, is that what it says? Because we've also got low-Earth orbit satellite systems on there. It's a lot of flying things, apparently. I mean, but that is a thing. I mean, like... Um... Planet Labs. But that's what I mean. That, that yeah. is a thing. Whereas, like, if, I'm, if you're reading like, flying autonomous vehicles, in my head I've got, like, as you say, Jetsons, not... Maybe it's like delivery drones. I don't know. I don't understand the definitions of these things. Well, I mean, Musk is out there saying that he's going to deploy, like, global Wi-Fi by a... Like, this is a real thing. I think he said by 2022 he's going to do that. So it's going to have to get a move on and get through this hype cycle. Do you think this is hedging at all? I know you used to work at Gardner, so I don't want to say it, but I feel like if you put something on the this is happening and then it doesn't happen, is this a the next year we have to walk it back? I don't know. I'm not sure whether it's... I, I mean, if you went into a innovation lab in a bank right now and you saw all of, all of this stuff and people doing stuff with it, I just sort of think they had too much money, wouldn't you? Like, <laughs> Well, there's one on here as well that says, going towards the trough of disillusionment is graph analytics. Is that analysing graphs? Because I feel graphs like we've been are out. doing Gra- that for a while. So, so. Yeah. <laughs> I love a good graph, but we are talking about a graph. Oh, sorry. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> mm. That's interesting, actually. So maybe next year they won't do a graph. It's no. just going to be raw data. Yeah. All right. On that note, we really <laughs> probably should wrap this up. Uh, thank you so much to our guests for joining us. Where can people find out more about you, Keith? Uh, you can email me at keithatplaid.com or you can find me on Twitter at means to meaning. Very good. Uh, Imran? Uh, you can email me at imran.gulamhuseymwala at openbanking.org.uk. And if you manage to do that, that is very impressive. Yeah. I mean, that's a security mechanism in itself right there. <laughs> it, it's cryptographically protected. <laughs> Audrey? You could listen to some of our programmes on the uh, BBC World Service. Uh, Tech Tent, out on a Friday afternoon. Very good. Sarah? You can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kajansky. Very good. And as for me, you can find me on at David Breer on Twitter. Uh, what do you think of today's stories? I mean, um, I always love reading the feedback. It's always very entertaining. So please do send us some feedback uh, either on Twitter at Fintech Insiders or email us on podcast at 11fs.com. Uh, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, Periscope, basically like all the socials at this point. And don't forget to watch and share the 11 Years documentary trailer. It's going to be a good one, guys. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.